From Psalm 57, verse 11, we read, Be exalted above the heavens, O God, and let thy glory be above all the earth. And it is to you, Lord, maker of heaven and earth, God of all creation, that we come today and submit in humble adoration of who you are, of the Son of God who came and became our Emmanuel. And we're so grateful that we can focus this time of the year upon the birth of Christ when he took on the form of man that he might become the redeemer of mankind. And Father, we exalt you for what you have done and for the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. And Father, as we study your word today, we pray that you will teach us according to our individual needs. And I ask, Lord, that you will bless the teaching of your word here in this complex throughout this morning and throughout this day. In Jesus' name, amen. After entering Canaan by miracle and the equally miraculous capture of the city of Jericho, which we have already studied, of course, Israel was brought up short by their initial defeat at Ai. However, because they willingly presented themselves humbly in submission before God and allowed him through them to judge the sin of Achan, Israel was given the dramatic victory that we read about last, last Sunday in the eighth chapter of the book of Joshua. And you will remember that God instructed Joshua to send a group of men to the west side of the city of Ai, down in the bottom of, a, of a, an arroyo, a, a valley, and uh, there they were to be an ambush for the city. And it was through this strategy that the city of Ai was taken. Now this maneuver of approaching a city and then when the forces come out of the city to attack you, you, you feign flight and you flee away, sucking them out of the city was not unique to Israel in this event. It's been practiced numerous times in history, but I don't know of any record where it was as overwhelmingly successful as it was in this instance, because we have no record of any Israelite being killed. And yet the entire army of the Canaanites was destroyed. It was by the presence of God that this happened, the empowerment of God, the blessing of God. Last Sunday at the very end of class, I read from Psalm 37, and let me just read the final verse again. For those blessed by God will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. If you turn to the 8th chapter of Joshua, I'd like to read beginning verse 24. Now it came about when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them were fallen by the edge of the sword until they were destroyed. Then all Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not withdraw his hand, with which he stretched out the javelin, until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Israel took only the cattle and the spoil of the city as plunder for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai, 
and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. And he hanged the king of Ai <coughs> on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua gave command, and he took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. Well, Israel has defeated the army of A and, uh, for that matter, of Bethel also. They're in the field to the north and, and to the east of the city of A, where they had feigned flight and sucked the enemy army after them. And they had begun to go down the escarpment towards the Jordan Valley. And, and in that relatively desolate place, in fact, it's even referred to as a desert or a wilderness, um, they slew the entire force of, this, of these two cities. And we're told in the passage that they killed the entire army. Not a man was left alive. And then they returned and went into the city of A, and it tells us that they slaughtered the entire population so that the entire number killed was 12,000, both of men and of women. God did not place a ban on the city. They were allowed by God to plunder the city. Nothing was to be held back. If they wanted it, they could have it. And so they went into the city and captured everything that was there. And of course, specifically named in the passage are the cattle. Uh, virtually every one of these uh, Canaanite towns had herds associated with the towns because the people, although they were many in some cases were herdsmen, they often lived within the protection of the walls. This is very characteristic of many parts of the world. Even if you go to medieval Europe, you'll discover, and it's fascinating to look at aerial photographs of many parts of Germany and, and France and other places where you, you see these circular villages, circular villages in some cases where the walls are still standing. And you can see where the fields radiated out like spokes from a wheel from the hub uh, out around. And, and the people would work their fields in the day and come into the city at night to be within the walls for protection. And so it was true here uh, for Ai and, and many of the cities within Canaan. Once the city was plundered, it was destroyed. I mean, it was flattened, it was burned. In Hebrew, the name of the site is Ha'ai, which means the ruin. The city was so completely destroyed that it was never rebuilt. As opposed to Jericho, where a curse was put upon the city that the person who built it would pay for it with the death of his eldest and the death of his lastborn, which actually happened because it was rebuilt. The city of A is never rebuilt. And in fact, the current archaeological site, which is designated Ai, is designated often with a little question mark after it. The site that is believed today to be the city was so identified by probably the most outstanding archaeologist of early to middle 20th century Palestine geog uh, geography, archaeology, and that was William Foxwell Albright. And he designated the current site, which was known as Etel, as being probably the site of A. Not all of the archaeologists are in full agreement with that, but for the most part, there's general agreement that that's probably the site of A. Whatever the case was, the city was located somewhere between 10 and 12 miles north of Jerusalem, so not far away from, from Jerusalem. In this passage, we see that Joshua gave a final warning to the other Canaanites. He hung the king. 
And after the king was dead and before sundown, his body was tossed into the destroyed gateway of the city and the rubble was piled up upon his body into a heap, which Joshua says remained even until the day that he penned this actual passage. This was to be a testimony to all the other Canaanites that this is what's going to happen to you also. It's interesting to note a, a parallel here between Joshua and Moses. You may remember that nearly 40 years before, when Israel was in the wilderness of Sinai, they were attacked by the Amalekites. And as Israel in their first military encounter, encounter under the leadership of Joshua, fought the Amalekites, Moses sat on a hill overlooking the battlefield and held the rod up. And you remember that Aaron and Hur came alongside to hold his arms up because after a while it was hard to keep his arms up. And in this passage, we discover that in, through the entire encounter, once the trap was sprung, until the whole Canaanite army was destroyed and the city of Ai was destroyed and plundered, that Joshua held his javelin high in the sky, pointed towards Ai, and the cities were ultimately overcome. I think in this passage, there is a, a very powerful lesson that we can glean. And, and that is that a defeat in battle does not equate to loss of the war. To be defeated in a battle does not mean you've lost the war. Israel lost a battle because of sin. The sin was that of one man, Achan. But the sin of Achan carried over to the whole population. And, and Larry came up a couple of weeks ago to point out the fact, you know, that 36 men died. But it wasn't because they had sinned. It was because another man had sinned. And really, you know, the protection of God was withdrawn. And, and as a result, they paid. And of course, we can derive a, a kind of an auxiliary lesson out of that too. And, and that is, if we're not walking faithfully with God, we expose ourselves to the attack of the enemy. You know, and, and as husbands and fathers, if, if we're not the, the uh, spiritual head of the home and giving the guidance that the family needs, we're exposing our family to enemy attack. And so it was, even though Achan certainly didn't see this, as what would happen, you know, just from what we've seen of his character, he may not even have cared had he known that would happen. I'm sure he would have cared if he'd known he was going to be executed. But uh, when Israel repented and got themselves right before the Lord, their victory was restored. And it's interesting to note that the loss to the enemy was 333 times greater than it was to Israel. I figured that out simply by dividing 36 into 12,000. <laughs> Israel lost 36, <laughs> A lost 12,000, the entire population of the city. That's not a law, of course, that we get 333 times more victory <laughs> over the people of the world, but it, it just is a principle that when God is with us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? So, likewise, as, as we look at this passage, if we sin, and we fall or uh, fail miserably in our walk. And from time to time, I think we have to admit we do that. We must not give up the walk as hopeless. We may not say, I can't do this, so I'm just going to forget it all and go away. No, because to lose the battle is not to lose the war. Instead, we, we must repent of our sin and trust him to give us strength and wisdom to renew our walk. Our pastor is often re referred to God being the God of the second chance, I think in, in this sense it's especially true. 
God gives us an, another opportunity. Get up and get on your way. God doesn't give up on us. And so we should not give up on him or on ourselves. When we read the passage, which we so often quote, quote from 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think we need to couple that with Jesus' words to Peter. When Peter said, well, Lord, how many times must I forgive the one who sins against me? And Jesus said, and he says seven times. He thought he was being magnanimous. And, and Jesus said 70 times seven, which is not to be taken as a statistical uh, measure of how many times you forgive. Otherwise, we go around with a little black book all the time. Well, that's number 363 for you, you know. It, it's a statement that there is no limit to the times we must give forgiveness to those who ask. And so when you put that in the context here, you discover that therefore God has no limit either. God is not limited in the number of times he will forgive us of our sin, providing we do one thing, confess our sin. And I think as we look at the word confess, we have to realize it doesn't just mean we run in before God and said, oh God, I blew it again, and walk out as if, you know, we've, we've paid our dues here. God is no fool. He knows our hearts, whether we're truly convicted of our sin or whether we're just trying to toss a bandage on it and pretend like there's no problem anymore. But if we, if we come with, with true contrition before God and we say, oh God, I've, I've failed again, God forgives and cleanses us. We may have lost that battle, but we're still in the war. We're, we're still soldiers in the war. Let me read from Psalm 32, beginning at verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That doesn't mean covered up. It means covered by the blood of the Lamb. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to thee, in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. I think all of us can relate to that passage in a very uh, intimate way. And particularly those of us who are, have lived in Reading very long, we know the draining fever heat of summer. <laughs> and, and so we can relate to his uh, parallel here that by hiding our sin, our vitality is sapped just as our energy is sapped in the fever heat of, uh, of a summertime. If we hide our sin, it is not hidden. It's not hidden from God, and in many cases, it's not even hidden from others. But we think it is. And so we, we function in that condition, and we're tearing ourselves apart and not hiding a thing from God and often not from others either. It's a real tragedy. I mean, Satan is a real master at this, at blinding people to the disaster that is impending when sins 
are not confessed to God. I, I thought of a couple of verses also a little bit later. Let me just read them uh, from Psalm 37. In uh, verses 23 and 24, we read, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Notice what it's saying there. It says that when we fall, the Lord is still holding our hand. He has not let go. And he wants to pick us up. He keeps us from falling into total disaster, falling headlong like plunging over a cliff. Because he's holding our hand. If we're true believers, he's holding our hand. He knows we're going to fall. And just like you and I, when we are teaching our children to walk, you know, in those first steps you hold their hand and they trip and fall and you hold them and keep them from hurting themselves. And so it is with God. Now, God does allow us to scrape our knee and bump our head occasionally because we insist on being headstrong sometimes, but he still is holding our hand. He had not given up on Israel. Israel was still his people, and that's why he called them into holy convocation so that he could deal with the sin in their midst. He wasn't letting them go, saying, oh, I'll pick somebody else. You guys are a bunch of jerks, because God knew there wouldn't be any better people anywhere because we're all the same. Well, let's, let's read on here in uh, Joshua 8. A very fascinating passage, beginning verse 30. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an, un an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. And all Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Well, what Joshua did might have seemed a little bit foolish from a military viewpoint. He, let, he, he has just now captured a couple of little towns just inside of Canaan, and now he leads his army 30 miles north deep into the heart of Canaan before he has secured the land, before he has captured any other cities or defeated any other armies. He leads his people deep into the heart of Canaan to the sites of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They followed the ridge route. Now again, if I could remind you of the geography of Israel, if you look at Israel in profile, that is a cross-section, and you start out with the Mediterranean over here on your left, which would be to the west, and, and you follow towards the east, you, you come across a coastal plain first. And then you come into a low hill country known as the Shephelah, 
which behind which is a is a very narrow valley area, a little bit higher in elevation than the coastal plain. And then you go into the into the highlands, uh, which are known as the highlands of Ephraim or the highlands of Judea. And then as you pass over the top of these highlands, which rise up to 3,000 feet or so uh, in elevation, you, you drop down into the valley of the Jordan, which through its entire length is below sea level. Most people know the Dead Sea is below sea level, but they don't realize that the Sea of Galilee is also 600 feet below sea level. So from its source to its mouth, the Jordan River is never above sea level. It's always below sea level. Oh, I suppose you could say, well, the melting snow on Mount Hermon is higher than sea level. But I'm talking about where it actually, the, the three streams that form the Jordan actually join together. They join together below sea level. So he is traveling that highland area. From the highlands of Judea to the highlands of Ephraim, he is moving north. And then when he gets to a certain point in the he'll, he'll turn slightly west and he'll come to the site of Shechem. And the question is, why does Joshua make such a radical move before they have secured the land, before they actually have a real bridgehead here? Or beachhead, maybe I should say. Well, I think there are two reasons. Firstly, was to show their disdain for the Canaanites. We don't care if you're here. You're not going to impact us. We want you to know that the, mom that the momentary defeat there before A was an, an anomaly. It was not the real thing. You are all doomed. And then secondly, I think probably the more impelling reason was the fact that he wanted to carry out God's command through Moses as quickly as possible. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 27. 27, Deuteronomy 27 beginning with verse 1. Then Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. So it shall be on the day when you shall cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime, and write on them all the words of this law when you cross over, in order that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord the God of your fathers promised you. So it shall be, when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones. You shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. Now you'll notice the imperative here. Moses says... And the literal reading there is on the day, which is to be interpreted not meaning the actual 24-hour day in which they got across the Jordan River, but in that early moment of conquest, they were to do this. And so Joshua was not going to wait. <laughs> Jericho had been given them. They'd captured Ai and, and Bethel. Now they're going to do what God commanded them to do through Moses. And so they marched straight to these mountains so that they could carry out the orders of God through Moses. The ancient city of Shechem. 
Today, if you visit Israel, you'll find Shechem is only a ruin. But this city was situated just east of the saddle between the two mountains, Ebal and Gerizim. Shechem was a special place to Israel, so it's a logical place for them to do this. Not only is it because Mounts Ebal and Gerizim stand up above the landscape, that the difference in relief from the base of the mountain to the top of these mountains is about 1,500 feet, which gives a pretty good view out across the land. But because this was the place where Jacob, after he had fled from Paden Aram, and he'd had his whole encounter with his brother Esau, and had survived that, had come into the land, that Jacob bought a piece of land there at Shechem, and on that piece of land, he built an altar. And he said this was the altar to El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. And so it was a holy place to the Israelites. It was also a place where, from which they had some bad memory. Because if you remember, it was at Shechem that the prince of the city raped Jacob's daughter Dinah. And in retaliation, two of his sons, Simeon and Levi, massacred the male population of the town of Shechem. And you remember they fled from there because Jacob said to his sons, you, you make me odious in the sight of the people here. If you get to the site of Shechem and you move just slightly further to the west, you can see rising up to the north, you, you discover the mountain called Ebal. Ebal is a mountain which rises to just under 3,100 feet above sea level. It's bald, it's rocky. And then just to the south is the twin peak of Gerizim, which rises to about the same, actually is a little bit higher than, uh, than Mount Ebal. And these two mountains are, are quite dominating if you are at the site of Shechem. Now, the word Ebal is of unknown foreign origin. But what is interesting about the name Ebal is that linguistically it is very close, very akin to the Hebrew word for worship. So there's probably some connotation there, even though those who have studied this can't uh, prove that connection. Um, Gerizim, the origin of that name, is, is even a little more difficult. It also is a foreign term. Anything with an im on the end in Hebrew is a plural. And uh, so it is thought to be the mountain of the Gerizites. And there is a passage in 1 Samuel that mentions a people called the Gerizites. And so it's probably the mountain of the Gerizites, as best as, as can be, uh, be determined. But what is important about this, and, and way back when, when we studied uh, Jacob coming to this place, when we were doing Genesis, I highlighted the fact that this is a very important site in the New Testament. Because Jesus sat at the well of Jacob in John chapter 4, and dealt with the woman of Samaria there. This is the well that is, was purportedly bought or dug by Jacob there at Shechem. And Jesus, in talking with her, was dealing with her need and, and her spiritual need. And, and she made reference to asking him the question whether basically it was right to worship here on Mount Gerizim or down 
on Mount Moriah at Jerusalem. And of course, Jesus went on to say that neither here nor there, it was all will worship him in spirit and in truth. But she was making reference to Mount Gerizim because around the time of Alexander the Great, which was in the later 4th century BC, the um, Samaritans built a temple on the top of Mount Gerizim, a temple that was to be a rival to the one in Jerusalem because they felt that the one in Jerusalem had somehow been defiled. That temple stood for about 200 years. It was later destroyed by the Maccabees in their great revolt against the the Greeks. And um, so she was referring to that temple site. Not that a temple still stood there, it didn't, but to that site. And archaeologists who have uncovered the various things that have been built on Mount Gerizim do believe that one site was that temple. And they say from that temple site, you can see Jacob's well down in the valley. And so she could have easily been referring to a site that was visible from from Jacob's well, where although the temple had been destroyed, the site was was visible there. And it helps us to understand that that encounter that Jesus had with her maybe a little bit better. It's a relatively barren area. There are trees on Mount Gerizim. There are very few trees on Mount Ebal. Many feel that Mount Ebal has no trees because it was the mountain of curse. But it was also the mountain where they, where they built the altar here. The summits of these two mountains are only about two miles apart. If you're on the top of Mount Ebal, you're only about two miles from the summit of Mount Gerizim. So, you know, you can easily see somebody uh, on the other mountain over there. According to, um, or that is in accordance with the 27th chapter of Deuteronomy, uh, Joshua set up an altar of unhewn stones on Mount Ebal and made offerings to the Lord directly as God had commanded through Moses. Then nearby, he raised up another set of stones, apparently. He plastered them, and then he inscribed the law on them. And, of course, a lot of debate has gone on about what exactly did he write. Some say, well, he probably wrote the Decalogue, you know, the Ten Commandments. But some scholars believe he wrote uh, basically the entire laws that is given in Deuteronomy, which would have taken him a little time, of course, to do. But such writings of that magnitude are not unheard of. There are Egyptian inscriptions that are long, long inscriptions carved in stone. There are Persian ones. There are Persian ones carved on cliff faces, which tell stories of Persian history and, and of their deities. And if you've ever seen pictures of the, um, of the stele on which the Code of Hammurabi was written, it's, it's about eight foot tall. It's a black basalt stone. And there are something like 2,500 cuneiform lines written on that. <laughs> so, you know, you, you can rattle out on a piece of stone if you have a mind to. And so whatever it was he wrote, however much of the law he wrote, it was there to remind Israel that God was their king. He was their deliverer, he was their guide, and he would give them the land. Well then, after that, a wonderful drama unfolds there for us. The Ark of the Covenant was placed right down in the very middle of the valley at the base of the two mountains. I mean, the two mountains come right down like this. And right smack in the middle, the Ark of the Covenant was was placed. The priests then gathered around the Ark. They circled the Ark there. 
And the people fanned out up the two hillsides, six tribes on Mount Gerizim, six tribes on Mount Ebal. And they fanned up the hillsides. And Joshua stood there before the ark, and he read the law to the entire nation. And they stood at attention, man, woman, and child, to hear the reading of the law. And then when he read from the 20, what we know as the 27th and 28th chapters of Deuteronomy, he led the blessings, or he, that is he read the, the blessings. Those that were arrayed up the slopes of Mount Gerizim, every time he read a blessing, they yelled out, Amen! You just hear the word echoing off the other hillside and down through the canyon. And then when he read the cursings, those who stood on Mount Ebal said, Amen, so be it, we agree to it. We agree to it. They're committing themselves, yes, what God has said we will do, and this will be the blessing if we obey, and this will be the curse if we disobey. We accept it. We agree to it. Now, if you ever get there, you'll discover that the two mountains come together. It's almost like a natural amphitheater there. It's, they're, they're so close, and, and the hillsides are rather steep as they slope up away from the valley. So you could just see Joshua reading loudly, and the words would carry up the sides of the hills almost as if it had been a, a Greek theater. As he read the law, and the people responded. It must have been dramatic. And I, I think if we could have been there, it would have sent chills up and down our spines. We could have understood, of course, what was happening. Today... That site is occupied by a modern Arab town known as Nablus. People who live there probably are not terribly concerned about what happened, even though they certainly know about it, because much of what is in the Old Testament is known to Arabs, to, to Muslims, because the Hebrew Old Testament is considered sacred, uh, second to the Quran by Muslims, even though they interpret things a little differently, of course, than the Jews do. But this ceremony was carried out with such force and such solemnity that I think it was indelibly written on the minds of everyone who was there. And we have to realize, you know, there were probably fidgety little kids who didn't know what was going on, but the older kids, they would have been impacted by the drama of it, certainly. The law was graphically portrayed as absolutely central to the existence of Israel, as the ark was in the very center of the valley between the two mountains, so the law was to be the center of the existence of the nation, corporately and individually. It was clear to all that they were totally dependent upon God's word. Look what happened to Achan. He disobeyed God's word and he paid a horrible price, and so did the whole nation. If the word of God is heeded by Israel, they will be blessed and it will be neglected to their peril. And that seems to be much of what we read in the Old Testament. You read through the book of Jeremiah and, and you just, you know, it's, it's almost like a depression. Israel has not heeded the word of God and therefore the curses have come upon them as a nation. You and I today live probably more comfortably than most of the Israelites did. And we don't see uh, this, this terrible doom and gloom as Israel might have seen it in this attempt to try to conquer a land with mighty armies and, and walled cities. So we may not recognize the absolute essential role of God's word in our life today too. It is no different for us than it was for Israel. The word of God is absolutely as important to us as it was to them. The truth is the same. 
the truth never changes, or else it wouldn't be the truth. To study and obey the Word of God brings blessing into our lives, and to ignore it or to disobey it is to forfeit peace. You know, this is a concept. We've talked about it before. When, when, uh, when Jews see each other, they say, Shalom. That's a little more in-depth than howdy, you know? Because when we say howdy, which is short for how do you do, we don't really want anybody to tell us. But when you say shalom, you're saying may the peace of God penetrate your being and all that you have and all that you are. May it be deep contentment and joy and, and just this, this constant communication between you and God is really the ultimate essence of, of the meaning of the word. And that is what is lost when the word of God is not known and not obeyed. That peace is lost, and we live our lives just all the time. We're worried and fretting and concerned and, and, and facing this trial after another without the strength and peace of God to carry us through. And that's why people commit suicide. That's why people drink. That's why they take drugs. Time to find peace. Turmoil and fear replace peace. Let me just read uh, some verses you're real, very familiar with from... Uh, First chapter of James, verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. You know, I, I think many of us sometimes read the Bible that way. We think, well, we've got to get through three chapters today, so we plow through three chapters, and our mind is on the ball game, and our mind is on work, and, you know, our body is there, but, but the words are just bouncing off our eyeballs. And, and that's what it's saying here. You, you forget what you look like after you stop looking in the mirror. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. We all know that we learn more by doing than by hearing. If it comes in our ears and then we do it, it becomes a part of us and we remember it. But if we just hear it and say, oh, well, that's a great idea and, and go on and ignore it, then it doesn't become a part of our lives. Well, in the conquest of Canaan, the Israelites have a stupendous task in front of them. They're faced with strong enemies who are going to form great alliances. It's not anymore Israel attacking Jericho, Israel attacking AA. It's, a, it's, it's Israel doing battle with alliances. Several cities joining forces together against Joshua. They will face literal giants. Literal giants. People 8 and 10 feet tall. Thus their only hope for success was to commit themselves to God and trust in His Word. And so there they said on the two slopes of the mountain, Amen, Amen, so be it, Lord.